All this week, we're exploring the experience of being a caregiver to a loved one. Roughly 66 million Americans working every day on call for someone. Hi, my name is Jeff. I'm calling from Charlotte, North Carolina. I had to care for my wife and my mother who simultaneously were sick. My wife was injured in a car accident, critically injured. A week later, my mother was diagnosed with cancer, and now I'm seeking treatment for PTSD, of all things. We don't recognize these workers in America. There are no organized benefits for them, even though their lives have changed so dramatically. Professor Margaret Batten was catapulted into a radically new experience of life when she became the caregiver for her husband, Brooke. He went from being an active, healthy spouse to being a completely dependent, severe quadriplegic after a bicycle accident that nearly killed him. That was back in November of 2008. The experience is sinking in for Peggy and Brooke in ways that have surprised even them. Peggy is a distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of Utah and has spent the greater part of her life advocating for patients' rights to end their lives. Peggy allowed us into her world of caregiving and her new routine of valuing life every day amidst all of the nurses and constant machines keeping her husband alive. In her case, when the end of life is a matter of simply flicking a switch, one learns deeply to understand that mysterious place between life and death. Respirators, machines, feeding tubes. Brooke has all those things. He has um, a feeding tube now. He has um, a cardiac pacer. He has a diaphragmatic pacer, um, which stimulates breathing. He has a ventilator, uh, at least some of the time. He requires supplementary oxygen some of the time. He requires many medications. Those are all things that might have been, uh, you know, rejected or if a living will had been honored. But you know what? He has said, you can get used to anything, right? Those things... When he doesn't feel well, those things loom large, but when he does feel well, those things are just part of the way he is present in the world. They make him work, uh, but they're not the focus of his attention. So many of the caregivers we've spoken with um, describe the experience as isolating sometimes, as a responsibility that is overwhelming. Um, From your perspective, Whose responsibility is the maintenance of Brooks' life? Is that his? Is that yours? Is that society's? Who does that hang on? It seems to me caregiving at its best is a two-way street. The caregiver provides care for the patient, but the patient also cares about the caregiver. But I don't think of his care as entirely my doing. In fact, the first thing that I thought about when he was injured or, or you try to think about what this will be like is to make sure that I never thought of myself as the sole or only caregiver or tried to do it all myself. That means burnout, collapse, and you don't want a person with needs as substantial as Brooks to be entirely dependent on a single person. After all, something could happen to me too. And there are other things, too. So you, you try to um, think about what you need and want that will make voluntary caregiving, elective caregiving, caregiving you want to do, not that you have to do, um, possible. So for one thing, um, exercise has always seemed important to me. Got to keep exercising so you don't fall apart physically. 
work. Work is a very large part of my identity, I guess you'd say. So you can't give up something that's that central and be a care provider without resentment. I'm wondering if you could talk about how at one moment Brooke decided to refuse care and how that ended up affirming this whole caregiving enterprise that you've been involved with for now the last two years. Happened one afternoon. It happened to be April Fool's Day, just by coincidence. It was a gray, sort of late winter day. Spring just wasn't there, though it should have been. And um, Brooke had been saying that he wanted to die, that he wanted everything unplugged. And remember that person has the legal right to continue, discontinue therapy that is keeping them alive. I was there with a respiratory therapist, one we are uh, very fond of, trust deeply. And we happened to be sitting there with Brooke in the living room, and he said, I want to die. I want you to unplug everything right now. So we did. We unplugged the ventilator, took it off. We discontinued the supplementary oxygen, and the, his diaphragmatic pacer has an external battery pack that you can turn on and off. So we turned it off, too, and showed him that we had turned it off. So those three things were all deactivated. It was a very compelling moment. He sat in his chair in the living room, one of us on either side of him. And he sat as upright as he could manage, with his eyes closed. There didn't seem to be tears or agitation or anything. He he appeared to be completely calm. And he sat there, and he sat there, and he sat there. And then after about two or three minutes that were among the longest minutes you can imagine. Mm. He opened his eyes. And he said, am I alive? Am, am I alive? I'm supposed to be dead. Right? And it took quite a while to convince him that he was really alive. Am I dreaming, he asked. No, you're not dreaming. You're really alive. And his sense of disbelief, I couldn't be alive. Everything was unplugged. As that dissipated and he realized that he really was alive, he said, I'm, I'm so overjoyed. I'm so happy. He said he would never use a phrase like this normally, but he would. He said, I'm a particularly happy camper. <laughs> right. So... The respiratory therapist and I had known that he wouldn't die. At least we had believed that. But just the same, it taught us something about the relationship between the expression of a wish to die and what happens, what happened in this case when someone discovered that he was still alive and was so happy. But you can't generalize that either to other people in other situations or beyond this particular instance, just for Brooke. So what if he had discovered he was still alive and been angry, disappointed, maybe furious, 
What would you have done? I don't know. Hmm. I guess I'm astounded at at uh, in this narrow seeming space between whether you have a ventilator on or have a battery pack connected or not and death that you've managed to find such sort of dignity and pride in being independent to being brook amidst all that machinery and that that's some lesson about life Mm -hmm. yes I think you can say that we both try at this. We try to keep it from being a tragedy. We try to keep from thinking of it as a tragedy. We try to focus on those things that are really important. Walking isn't really important. It's convenient. But as you well know, one can have a full and rich life without walking. I think that's a good definition for caregiving. That is recognizing that there are other ways to be in the world. Margaret Peggy Batten is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of Utah and caregiver to her husband, Brooke, Professor of English at the University of Utah. Thanks, Peggy. Thanks. Professor Margaret Batten, who likes to be called Peggy, was catapulted into a radically new experience of life when she became the caregiver for her husband, Brooke. 